Our scripture reading today will be from Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you, and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that we have the opportunity to know you and love you today through your word. It is good to be here. It is good to receive your word. Help us to hear it today, not just as the words of men, but as the words of the living God. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was big news out of uh, Leicester, England this week. If you're an archaeological buff, you know that uh, the bones of King Richard III were discovered last August, and they used DNA evidence to prove that indeed they were his bones. He was discovered underneath a parking lot. So next month I'm hoping they can find Jimmy Hoffa and solve that problem as well. (laughs) King Richard was a, a king of England. He served for about two years. He was killed in battle. And um, a lot of uh, mysteries surrounding him, some of which are recorded even in literature. For instance, maybe you read in high school Shakespeare's play of King Richard. It begins with this, Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York and all the clouds that lord upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Remember that? Maybe not. Okay, so... The remains of um, King Richard confirmed some things that they had believed, some things that were even in Shakespeare's play, like he had uh, scoliosis, therefore Shakespeare pictured him as kind of being a hunchback, and um, skull injury confirmed that he was indeed killed in battle, and also it indicates that how he was buried, he probably was buried rather hastily. And so one of the things that I love about those kind of discoveries, archaeological digs, so to speak, that they begin to uncover things that maybe we thought we knew before, but now we know more clearly, things that um, we know in terms of history, but now we see it in a a way that is uh, much more evident. 
That's the really kind of the neat thing about archaeology. I would suggest to you that the book of Exodus is a bit like an archaeological dig. There's things that you know about the Bible, maybe some things that you don't know about the Bible. But the thing is, when you get in the book of Exodus, you start to learn things that either sound familiar or maybe terms that you have heard in the past. For instance, the book of Exodus has terms and ideas that are very foundational in it, things that I'm sure most of us are familiar with. You've probably heard of the Feast of Passover. This begins in the book of Exodus. The concept of the Lamb of God begins in Exodus. The concept of God being the I Am the, the idea of an exodus at all, it really comes out of this book. It gets its title from this, this notion of people being delivered out of slavery. So even elements of what it means to be redeemed, these are foundational elements that we begin to discover and dig up in the book of Exodus. And it's helpful in that it causes us to see these terms in new lights. But there is one term that is very significant that we see in our text today, a term that extends not only from the Old Testament, but lands in the New Testament in a glorious way. It is the term firstborn. And today we're going to look at the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn, in terms of its warning. God promises that this plague is going to come. Next week we're going to look at Passover. We're going to celebrate communion. It's going to be a glorious day. And today I want to set up next week by helping you understand the significance of this concept of the firstborn and then show you how marvelously the person Jesus Christ typifies this firstborn and even changes it in a new and beautiful redemptive way. Chapter 7 through 12 of this glorious book are about the God who delivers, and today we're going to see that this is the sovereign God who delivers and saves. So it's not just that he delivers, but he also delivers and he saves. And where the firstborn fits into this is it becomes the nexus between the sovereignty of God and the salvation of God. And it all crosses in this idea of what the firstborn is all about. So this 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, is a monumental moment for Pharaoh, for Egypt, for Israel, and for God. This will be a moment that will mark Israel for the rest of her days. This will be a a moment in Israel's history that God will continually refer back to. So what we have here is more than just a final plague. Embedded in this narrative is the history of the word firstborn, the convergence of God's ability to be God and his unstoppable plan for his people. So when you hear the word firstborn, I want you to hear some things. I want you to hear God is absolutely on his plan and there is nothing that can stop him. And the 10th plague just communicates that with power and authority. So we're going to first look at this in Exodus, and then I want to take us over to the New Testament and hopefully give you just a beautiful sense of what Jesus is all about and how it relates to this text. So first here, the significance of the firstborn plague in the Exodus narrative. Chapter 11 um, is a bit of a flashback. So when Moses wrote Exodus, he didn't just write it to be a historical account of what happened. Moses has theology in mind. And so there are things that he writes, not necessarily even in the exact order in which they happen, or the way in which he positions them is in order to communicate a message. And we have that in chapter 11. Because chapter 11 and verse 1 
says, and the Lord said to Moses. Well, if you have an NIV translation, I have ESV. If you have NIV, it says, and the Lord had said to Moses. And that's picking up on a particular nuance of a Hebrew word referring to a flashback. And so there's two flashbacks. The first one is in verses 1 to 3, and then the second one is in verse 9. And so what we have is we have two flashbacks, two things that God has already said to Moses, but they're recorded again as if he's saying them in real time. And then sandwiched between these two flashbacks is the account where Moses talks directly to Pharaoh. And there's a point as to why the scriptures are set up this way. There's a point that God is trying to make in this entire text. There's five different things that I want to highlight by way of the meaning of this word firstborn. The first is this, and that is that God keeps his promises. Look at verse 1. The Lord said, or the Lord had said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And afterward, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So this is all of what Moses had heard previously. Verse 9, similar thing. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses had heard this in the first flashback. He had heard this at the burning bush all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 to 22. And regarding the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, he saw that, he heard about that in chapter 7, verses 3 and And now we have this account of, of Moses going in and speaking to Pharaoh, and it's sandwiched by these two thoughts. Why is this? Here's why. Doug Stewart, in his commentary on this particular chapter, says this, Moses was writing this story not merely to help his fellow Israelites trust Yahweh as things happened, but to help them learn to trust Yahweh that, excuse me, to help them learn to trust that Yahweh is the one who makes things happen in the first place as a part of a great redemptive plan for the benefit of his people. So it's not just that God is going to work this out. It is that God is the author of making everything work out. We began our study of the book of Exodus with that very thought. Exodus 2 says, And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So the point that Moses clearly is making, even in the setup of the text, is this, that God is worthy to be trusted. And that's a lesson that Israel will have to learn the rest of their life with God. That's a lesson that you and I need to learn. And isn't it a hard lesson to learn? It really is. One of the advantages, though, of having history, in other words, of getting older is you have more track record to be able to see all of the ways that God has proven himself faithful. To be able to look back on your life and know time after time after time after time, God has shown himself to be strong, he's shown himself to be trustworthy, and that helps, doesn't it? One of the helpful aspects of, of getting older is looking back on your life and be able to say, boy, you know what, God was there with me then, and he will surely be here with me now. It helps when you're on, as I've talked about so often, on those dark side of God's will sort of moments. And what Moses is communicating here is that God is worthy to be trusted. The death of the firstborn is not just a warning to Pharaoh about the consequences of his heart and heart. It is also an encouragement to Israel. It's also a warning to Israel that God can and should be trusted. 
And as we'll see as we continue our journey through the book of Exodus, Israel did not usually learn this lesson the easy way. But lest you're too hard on them, we don't either, do we? Secondly, here's the other thing in this text. We find that God is the one true God. So, God tells us in Exodus chapter 11 that he's going to target the firstborn. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go into the midst of Egypt, and every, notice how many times the word firstborn is used, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. So the point is, is the firstborn in every family will die. Like all the other ten plagues, this plague attacked the Egyptian worldview. In fact, this one, probably more than any other, just completely shattered it. At the end of this plague, they will not only be sending Israel out, they will be paying them to leave. A number of reasons why this plague would have been so disturbing. First, it happened at midnight. Their their understanding of the god Ra or Re was that in the evening he went into the underworld and the people were unprotected so they were scared of the night and here god comes at midnight secondly the plague affected every level of their culture there wasn't a single home in the land that wasn't affected everybody woke up the morning after this plague hit with somebody dead in their household everybody knew somebody who died there's also another aspect that's important to note, and that is that the pharaohs of Egypt were considered the sons of God. And they were worshipped as such. They were viewed as the sons, sort of the firstborn of the gods. And as a result, they were obsessed with immortality and the afterlife. And therefore, for every household to be simultaneously struck with death... And to have it target the firstborn would have been frightening because neither Pharaoh nor their gods could protect them. Pharaoh couldn't even protect himself. And the point is, is there is only one true God. And Pharaoh, in Egypt, you are on the wrong side of this God. Number three, in regards to firstborn, the message is, with this word, that God owns everything. To target the firstborn, and as we'll see, this idea of firstborn and God's ownership of it, it begins to extend into Exodus 13, and then even to the um, concept of the Old Testament law. And there's something important here about the significance of what the firstborn is all about. There's a reason why God targets the firstborn. In the ancient Near East, a firstborn, typically the firstborn son, was believed to possess more closely his father's unique qualities. And therefore, he was destined to succeed his father as the head of the household. And as a result, the firstborn would also receive a larger inheritance. He would be the line through which the future generations would come, and he would be the one who would take on the reins of leadership after the father was dead. So the firstborn son was a a prominent and important position, not only because of the birth order, but also because of what it meant for the family's future. Their hope for the future was based in their hope of the firstborn son. The other reason that God targets the firstborn is because Israel is his firstborn. He says this in Exodus 13. Excuse me, we'll come back to that. 
Exodus 4, that's where that is. God says this, this is Exodus 4.22, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So Exodus 4, God in effect says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, you have to let my firstborn son go. If you don't, I'll take your firstborn son. The other reason why firstborn is so important is that God lays his mark of ownership on that firstborn in order to communicate that he owns everything. Exodus 13, God says this, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. So God targets the firstborn not only because of its cultural significance in Egypt, but also because that firstborn, according to God, belongs to him. Why would God target the firstborn that way? Here's why. Think back to your first car. Mine was like a 1982 Chevy Citation. I pulled up a picture of it on Wikipedia, and my boys were like, that is an ugly car, Dad. So, but it was mine, right? It was my first car. We got it painted, you know, cherry red. I mean, it was, it was not a great car. But anyway, so it was my first car. Remember your, remember your first house? Ours was on 23rd Street in Holland, Michigan. Worst house on the block. When we painted it, our neighbors said, oh, thank you so much for painting your house. Remember the first time your kids came home from the hospital? For me, that looks like this, right? For you, maybe it was like this. And maybe you're coming home from the hospital, and those, those, you, you've born a child into the world. So when these first things happen, you begin to feel the beauty of what it means to reproduce, to be able to recreate. You have your things, you have your car, you have your home, you have your children. And if you're not careful, those things can begin to feel like yours. And so what God does is he puts the mark of ownership on the first of everything and says the first things that you might want to grab a hold of, all those first things, they belong to me. And this firstborn idea will, will flow all the way through the Old Testament as we'll see first fruits offerings, firstborn sacrifices, firstborn redemption. The firstborn belongs to God. And so this, this plague targeting this is a clear and final statement regarding God's ownership of everything. As we'll see next week, Death would have been brought to everyone in the home. There was, there was death to everyone. Even the Israelites had elements of death. Either a firstborn son died or a lamb died. So the Passover event is a bloody event. Lots of death connected with it. And this moment of the death of the firstborn marks Egypt and Israel for the rest of their lives. No one would ever be the same with this ultimate statement by God regarding his complete ownership. This is a statement of God saying to Egypt and to Israel, I am God, you are not. In fact, if you have your Bible, look at Exodus 13 and verse 13. This will become a a warning, a reminder to Israel for the rest of their lives. 13.13 says, Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Why do you have to redeem them? Because they belong to God. That's why. And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, 
Here's the marker. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And it shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets before your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So this plague... On Egypt and the deliverance that comes through the Passover is a statement that God owns everything because He is God. Fourth, the plague also is a reminder that God will personally bring judgment and justice. The the plague and its warning is as ominous as it is personal. In the previous plagues, God mediated through Moses. Moses would take the staff, he struck the water, it turned to blood. They took soot from a, 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 a brick-making kiln, threw it in the air, and it became boils. Moses was the mediator. Now, God himself comes. The text tells us this. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out in the midst of of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. So this judgment will involve the personal activity of God himself. Pharaoh and Egypt will no longer contend with the mediator. They will no longer deal with a intermediary person like Moses. They will experience, listen to me, the tragedy of being on the wrong side of a holy God. And with this judgment, God will execute divine justice. He will bring justice and he will bring it personally. It reminds me of what the writer of Hebrews says, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. He'll bring justice. He'll make everything right. It is by no accident that the text says this, In verse 6, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. That word cry is the same word that's used back in chapter 3 to describe the cry that God heard from his own people. So just listen to that. God is going to make everything right. He will bring judgment and justice and he will bring it personally. Here's the fifth thing. And that is that God's redemption will also bring blessing. So we have all of these, again, Old Testament ideas, Exodus concepts of what's going on here in this this warning of the plague that is to come. And what we find here is the final significance of this plague relates to what the victory that they will receive, what it will look like. When you read Exodus, though, you can't just think that God took them out of slavery, that he redeems them from slavery. It's just not that he saves them from something. What you see in this text is that he saves them to something. It's not just that he delivers them from the bondage that is in Egypt. He actually sends them out and sends them out with incredible blessings. And what we have here is a war type, war type of metaphor that's used for people that at the end of a war receive the spoils of war. And what we see is that the people of Israel are paid to leave. Look at verse 2. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor, every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. 
And so they are going to plunder the Egyptians just as God had said they would. Moses also receives the honor that he is due. Verse 3 says, The man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. In other words, Moses would one day finally be proven right. So the death of the firstborn brings judgment on Egypt, but it also brings justice to Israel. And so the death of the firstborn converges the judgment of God and the justice of God. So when you put all of this together, that God is the one true God, that He keeps His promises, that He owns everything, He brings judgment and justice, and this redemption brings blessing... If you know a little bit about the New Testament, you can begin to hear the early rumblings of what will become a beautiful symphony in the New Testament. The the Exodus moment is more than just a final act of God's deliverance. This last plague is more than just the last of ten plagues. This, This last plague is a definitive statement to Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to Israel. And for that matter, it's a definitive statement to us about the sovereign power of God. This this plague targets the firstborn in order to clearly communicate that there is no one like the Lord. No one. This plague will mark the people for all of their generations. And it becomes foundational for what we find in the New Testament. And that's where I want to go next. So how does this relate to the New Testament? So in the New Testament, another firstborn dies. The death of the firstborn in the New Testament is, of course, Jesus. And what we see in the New Testament is this reality of the firstborn son begun to take, take, been taken to a new level such that Jesus himself is called the firstborn. Matthew 1, Jesus is called the Son of God. Matthew one twenty five. Jesus is called the first son which Mary has born. Mark 1, 1, Jesus is called the Son of God. Luke 2, it's very explicit. It says this, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. So Jesus is this firstborn son. There's a clear marker of the importance of the fact that he is this firstborn son. As well, the, the New Testament portrays him in a metaphor, if you will, of Israel coming out of Egypt. In Matthew's account, Jesus flees to Egypt because of the uh, the fear of him being killed by Herod. And Matthew says, and he came out of Egypt in order to fulfill a prophecy in Hosea chapter 11 that says, out of Egypt I have carried or called my son. So Jesus, in effect, is the new Israel. There's so many things that are, are woven into this matter of the firstborn son and what Jesus is. In fact, the Apostle Paul states it so clearly in Colossians 1.15. He says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Here it comes. The firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Notice the ownership. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He not only has honor and power, but he has ownership. Everything relates to him. And the Bible in the New Testament uses this firstborn marker in order to communicate this. He was not just born first. Physically, it is that he was the firstborn in terms of honor and power. And none of this is by accident. Secondly, in the New Testament, we find parallel to the Old Testament Exodus idea that redemption from sin, deliverance is accomplished by the death of the firstborn, but now it is the death of the firstborn son of God. So rather than the firstborn son dying so that Israel can be freed, now the firstborn son of God dies so that people can be freed from another kind of slavery, not the slavery of Egypt, but instead the slavery of sin. And it is Jesus who is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the marvelous thing that happens is that Jesus now becomes the nexus between the firstborn death in Exodus and the Lamb of God of the Passover. He is both the one who absorbs the plague of God's wrath and also provides deliverance through His blood. He is both the firstborn who dies and the Lamb of God who provides protection and covering from the judgment of God. It's unbelievable. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He, meaning God, made Him, Jesus, for our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin. So God inflicts on Him the ultimate plague. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in, in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So the death of Jesus then is this glorious divine combination between the death of the firstborn and the death of the Lamb all in one moment. And all of this leads to the deliverance of His people from another kind of slavery, not the slavery of Egypt, but instead the slavery of internal indwelling sin. Redemption from sin is accomplished by the death of the firstborn Son of God. Here's the third thing. This plays out in the New Testament in that Jesus bears the penalty and he satisfies the divine demand for justice. So, divine justice must be served for the consequences of rebellion through sin. In other words, because God is holy, he can't simply allow sin to go unatoned for. Martin Luther said in Romans chapter 3 that Romans 3 to 23 to 26 is probably the most important text in all of the Bible. And it says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our condition. What's available to us, we are justified by His grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And what did He do? whom God put forward as a propitiation in exchange by His blood to be received by faith. And then this is such an important phrase. Verse 26, So that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in Jesus, what happens is that God, by pouring out the plague of His wrath on 
him that you and I deserved. He pours out the plague of his wrath on his own firstborn. He kills his own firstborn and then uses his death as the covering from those who would then be delivered. In that moment, God can be both just and justifier. And Jesus is both the firstborn and the Lamb of God. Being just means that the satisfied penalty for sin has been accomplished and justifier in that he can wipe away the sins of those who have sinned against him. He can take the death of Jesus and apply it to those who receive him by faith. And we'll see next week that this is exactly what God does in the Passover. God is coming on Egypt, there is no doubt. And there will only be two kinds of people in the world. In Egypt, on that night, there will be those who don't believe that God is coming. They don't believe the warning. They don't believe that he really is the creator God. They don't believe that they're in danger. And the result, when they wake up the next morning, there will be death in their household. One of their children will die. God will execute his justice on that home for their failure to believe. On the other hand, are people who heard God's warning, believed what he said, killed a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, believing in faith that what God said would happen. If you take this blood and you trust in me that I will cover you with this blood and you cover the doorposts of your house, then when I come in judgment, I will not come to your house. I will pass over you. And the message of the New Testament is exactly the same. The creator God is coming in judgment he has to because of our awful sinfulness and only those who have run into the house of christ who are covered by the blood of jesus only those people are saved from the wrath of god he is coming he is coming he is coming and you don't want to stand face to face with the holy god and be uncovered by the blood of christ the death of the firstborn is a harbinger of another moment that jesus brings but also another moment that is yet to come. Jesus bears the penalty. He satisfies the demand for justice. And the reason that he can be just and justifier is because the firstborn son bore the penalty for our rebellion. And then he not only saves us from something, he saves us to something. Here's the glorious thing. This is... This is unbelievable that the followers of Jesus then share in his victory, just as the Israelites shared in the victory. They didn't win the battle. God won it, and yet they were being paid to leave. They had nothing to do with their own deliverance. God pulled them out of Egypt and then blessed them with innumerable blessings. In the same way, those who are in Christ are blessed, the Bible says, in the heavenly places with unbelievable spiritual blessings. Not the least of which is the blessing of being associated with Christ. Listen to how the book of Colossians puts this. He, meaning Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Meaning that he's the first one to be raised to newness of life. The idea being, if you've received Christ, he's the first and you're next. To be firstborn also means that you, you are conformed to the image of Christ. Listen to Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Why? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
So why is God orchestrating all things for your good? Why is he creating you more and more like Jesus? Why is he using all circumstances in order to form you to be like Jesus? Because at the end of the day, you're going to join Jesus in this beautiful assembly of the firstborn. Those who have been blessed, those who have been honored, those who have been redeemed. And you will know in heaven it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with this firstborn son who is also the Lamb of God who gave everything so you could have your life before God. Listen to what Hebrews says. Hebrews says this so clearly. Hebrews 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, of the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. And then he says this. I just love this phrase. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. It is that you get to be a part of the assembly of the firstborn and the only reason you're there is because of the firstborn son who is also the Lamb of God. So listen to me. Those who receive the death of this firstborn son become a a part of the assembly of the firstborn. We share in the victory of Christ. His victory becomes the victory of those who place their faith in Him. And is it any wonder that the Apostle John, at the end of the Bible in Revelation, when he sees this lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, says this, Worthy are you to take the scrolls and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every from every tribe and language and nation and people, and you have made us a kingdom and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And everything about that promise is conditioned on the person and work of Jesus. See, this church, this is the song of Exodus, but not the Exodus where you're taken out of Egypt. This is the song of an Exodus where you are brought out of your own sin. It is the song of people who've been redeemed by the death of another who owe everything to this Lamb of God, who is also the firstborn Son. So underneath the surface of so many things that are in the Bible, especially the New Testament, is this these these beautiful things that become the foundation upon which the New Testament is based, the, the, the understanding even of what salvation is based and what redemption is all about. The story of the death of the firstborn is meant to warn you and it's meant to invite you. It's meant to warn you that there is still a sovereign God who rules the universe, a sovereign God who owns everything. There's still a holy God who defines right from wrong and who cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And Exodus tells us, listen to me, listen to me, God always wins. He always wins. God always wins. And it's also an invitation. And the invitation is to see Jesus as the firstborn son, to see him as the Lamb of God who can cause the judgment of God to pass over you. It's an invitation to, in effect, to run inside the blood-covered house, which is Jesus, in order for you to be forgiven and protected from the wrath of a holy God who would be absolutely just, and he must deal with our sin. And unless you're covered in the blood of Christ, this cross that you look at and think about is not an emblem of salvation. It is a warning of future judgment. 
The invitation then is to receive the firstborn son who died so you could be delivered. And it is, if you've received this beautiful gift, to live in the glorious reality of what it means for him to be worthy, for you to say, worthy are you for you were slain and ransomed me to God. So Lord Jesus, help us to live in light of these great and glorious truths that should affect what we do next, even now. I pray for those who are here who this very day needs to be a day where they turn from darkness to light, when they turn from pursuing their own way. And would you, Holy Spirit, even now, call men and women to run into the house of Christ in order that they might be saved. And Lord, would you help us to live in this gospel all the time that Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. Thank you that you're trustworthy. Thank you you've proven yourself over and over, especially in the gospel We want to love you and know you more, Christ. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray this. Amen. He's worthy because he ransomed us. There'll be some folks up here afterwards for prayer. If uh, you have a need, want to talk more about the things that I've talked with or we've sung about today, they're here to help or pray for you in any way today, okay? God bless you, church. Thanks for coming. I love you.